Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The House of Lords is like a glass of champagne that has stood for five days, Clement Attlee once joked. Grand, opulent, but now maybe a bit stale and harder to swallow. This is our historic, quirky, unelected and increasingly controversial second chamber. Did you intervene to secure Egmont Lebedev a peerage? That is uh, simply incorrect. How did his colleague, Baroness Moan, end up with nearly £30 million of taxpayers' money in her bank account. You mightn't have realised it, but the Lords has quietly lost the confidence of the British public. Two-thirds of voters have not very much or absolutely no confidence in the House of Lords, according to YouGov. Divided on so much, this cuts across Labour and Tory, young and old, leave and remain. We often joke about the Lords like a funny, harmless quirk of the Westminster system. But the weird and wonderful world of the Lords is about to come under scrutiny again. Because very soon, we believe Boris Johnson will be dropping his much-awaited honours list. Boris Johnson texting from his sunbed somewhere across the world just to make sure that they hadn't forgotten about Paul Dacre's peerage. It's due before the end of the month. And at least eight of the choices, Chris Hope of The Telegraph tells us, could be problematic. Rishi Sunak might have to consider vetoing his old boss's choices. And let's not even get into the question of whether Liz Truss will be doing her own resignation honours. We're on the cusp of another big debate about who sits in the Lords, how they get there, what they do and whether it's working. So this week, I wanted to delve into those questions and take you inside one of the maddest parts of the British political system. The House of Lords as a second chamber wasn't designed in the same way that other political systems might have been. We are perfectly normal human beings. We just happen to have inherited a title. We have afternoon tea here, you know, which we pay for, but, you know, we have pastry chefs that make the most amazing cakes. So there's an expertise there that's unavailable to people in the House of Commons. It's not unheard of to see the old peer falling asleep in the chamber. People who seek to say it's too hard to change are defending the status quo and a status quo that is uniquely broken. Well, Gordon Brown's been obsessed with this. You certainly wouldn't in your first term want to be taking on the battle that's been raged for a hundred years and more. From Politico, I'm Alva Ray, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm taking you inside the House of Lords. I'm showing you how it really works, meeting the weird and wonderful characters who sit on those famous red leather seats, and asking whether, maybe, given it's now 2023 and we all think democracy is kind of a good thing, it might be time to get rid of the whole crazy place altogether. We're here in Central Lobby, right at the very heart of Parliament. The TV crews are here, reporting on the day in politics. Groups of tourists are milling around. But instead of taking a left to the House of Commons, as we normally do to chase a story, we're taking a right. We're going to the House of Lords. Hello, 
Lord McFall, great. Yeah, nice great. You. Yeah, you too. This is John McFall, the Lord Speaker. Before we go any further, we should explain that you are dressed as the Speaker. And I've got my little bib here, a lot of Presbyterian minister. <laughs> <laughs> we walk the corridors of this grand place. Now we're going round here mm-hmm. to the Prince's Chamber. And it feels like being in a palace, which it is. You'll see here that the carpet is blue in colour. The colour of the carpet reflects the royalty element of it, the blue blood. And I heard something about only certain people being allowed to stand on the blue carpet. Is that correct? Well, you're standing I know, that, but, but <laughs> historically, what I have not been allowed to. Well, I think we've adapted with the times uh, on that. The links to aristocracy and monarchy are everywhere. I mean, there are all these heraldic shields mm-hmm. and... It's Henry VIII, Anne yep, Boleyn. And his wives. And, and all the wives, they're all here. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a nice environment in which to work. I think that's how mm. I would describe it. And it's just used on an everyday basis. Because unlike the House of Commons, this end of the building has been a place, historically, for representatives of the aristocracy and the church to make Britain's laws. It evolved from medieval times, when a council of abbots and bishops and noblemen would advise the king. And even though most peers are now at least appointed by elected politicians, there are still 26 bishops here and 92 hereditary peers. It's probably smaller than people think it is. We're in the chamber itself that you'd recognise off TV. Unlike the House of Commons, everything is red and the Speaker can't sit in the big gold chair at the top. That's the throne and it's reserved for the monarch. This is the throne here and when members come in to the chamber they always bow to the throne, the cloth. The Lord Speaker sits in the very middle of the chamber on the wool sack. That's your perch. Where I sit. Mm -hmm. Not the most comfortable uh, (laughs) place to sit. It's a bit like a very big more grand bean bag, isn't it? We go over to the dispatch box and find a tiny bit of history. That indent was made by Winston Churchill. During wartime, the house was bombed, and so therefore Mr Churchill's famous speeches were made here. Wow, all, the, all those big wartime speeches. Yep. And just to explain for listeners, we're standing at one of the dispatch boxes, and in the wood sort of underneath the dispatch box they're just these dents yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> do you have a big ring yeah that's incredible now let's leave the lord speaker and climb some very old grand stairs let's slip past a policeman or two and we're alone in the gallery perching over the chamber of the house of lords we scan the red benches and without meaning to be rude the first thing you notice is the demographic of the people taking part. It's very white, very old, very male-dominated, and some people are half asleep. There's Joe Johnson, Boris Johnson's brother, Karen Brady off The Apprentice, the businesswoman Helena Morrissey, Michael Dobbs, the author of House of Cards, sitting with his friends, relics from the Thatcher era, nodding along as the government minister in the Lords makes a statement. When I first covering the Lords, I thought, oh God, I'm going to have to learn all their names. And, you know, there's seven or eight hundred of them. This is my political colleague and Lords devotee, Esther Webber, who began her career at BBC Parliament. But actually, I quickly realised that there is a hardcore of regular attendees who are there every day and who make up the bulk of contributions who will always be there for a debate on, say, social care or defence spending. Like the Commons, there are the government and opposition benches where you can spot the ghosts of government's past. There's a little bench to the right of the front bench where some of the big beasts Michael Heseltine, David Blunkett, cabinet ministers of yesteryear. They're dotted in between business people, party donors, diplomats, scientists, veterans of old number 10 administrations, and even, once upon a time, the composer of Cats the Musical. And then in between the two sides, uh, the cross benches, which is a big difference from the Commons, so a whole group of peers who don't have a party affiliation but usually specialise in a certain area 
of public life. Oh, and then there are the bishops. There'll always be at least a bishop there to make sure everything's ticking over. The place can have a bit of a surreal quality, which is why some people develop a certain fondness for it. There is a feeling sometimes it appears are not always aware that they're being watched. And I think that creates some really bonkers moments. The noble lord was fast asleep for the entire duration of the minister's speech. He really should not participate in this debate. Whether it's, you know, a baroness standing up to talk about her pet ferret or someone resigning at the dispatch box out of the blue. There have been some brilliant eccentric moments here down the years. Who could forget 89-year-old Baroness Trumpington literally sticking two fingers up at an adversary across the chamber after he joked about her age? Or that time a minister resigned because he was late? I'm thoroughly ashamed at not being in my place and therefore I shall be offering my resignation to the Prime Minister. And of course the Lords has had some high drama too. From big Brexit standoffs to forcing Gordon Brown to abandon his parliamentary battle to allow police to detain terror suspects without charge for up to 42 days. There can be a backwater feel about it and, you know, it's not unheard of to see the old peer falling asleep in the chamber. But on the other hand, I would say that because they don't have the same time constraints as the Commons, so their business is not limited in the same way, they can have much longer debates on legislation, more detailed. And actually, some of those debates are way more of a test of stamina than any debate in the Commons. And it's not unheard of for peers to bring in sleeping bags and camp out because debates are going on for so long. So even though, yes, you do have this slight gang of faded glory, that isn't to say that there isn't hard work also taking place. So, familiar old faces, eccentric moments and long debates too, for some of them. But what does the Lords actually do? Let's go back to the Lord Speaker. It's a pleasure to welcome yourself, Alvin Politico, into the Lords. Can we maybe just begin with a slightly cheeky question? If I were to ask you, what's the point of the House of Lords? What would you say? Well, the House of Lords performs a really crucial role in scrutinising legislation. The House of Commons has a guillotine procedure whereby it limits the length of time that members debate legislation. So it's the House of Lords which is the place where that scrutiny takes place. And that's the main element of it. So the House of Lords helps make good law. Message from the Commons that they agree to certain amendments made by the Lords in lieu of amendments made by the Lords. Even journalists who've been covering Westminster for years admit they find the Lords a bit confusing. ...made in lieu of the amendment made by the Lords to which they disagreed (laughs) with amendments. So, here's the Lords Speaker's Guide for Dummies. When I visit schools, I say, well, look, the House of Commons sends us legislation along with a dirty face. We clean up that face and send it back to them. Now, if they're persistent uh, and they overturn it, they send it back to us, we can look at it again and send it back to them, scrubbed up even more. Now, if it gets to a third stage, what we say is like a good parent saying, well, look, you've been told about this situation, but you've made your own bed, you lie on it. The Lords is a revising chamber, looking carefully at legislation, suggesting amendments and ping-ponging back and forth with the House of Commons. They can try to get things rewritten, but they can't ultimately stop the elected government from carrying out its wishes. Well, we've got to remember that the House of Lords is an unelected chamber. So the sovereignty, if you like, lies with the House of Commons. And we realise that at the end of the day, the House of Commons has to get its business. So we are in there to help them in that process. We can delay legislation, 
but we can't block legislation. The Lords has become notorious for the presence of cronies in recent years. Friends and acquaintances of past political leaders and party donors who've managed to get themselves elevated to the second chamber. But the Lord Speaker is keen to remind me of some of the less discussed peers who play key roles in proceedings. Well, there are 800, but the average attendance in the Lords is about 350 to 400 every day. So we can distinguish between those who are Lords who don't come and those who are Lords and are working peers, you know, 350. But on our way to my office, uh, we met Lord Robertson, former NATO General Secretary, a good friend of mine. So he's got a great international experience. But we've also got law Lords, for example, the former Lords Chief Justice, Lord Wolfe, and Lord Judge. We've also got three or four Chiefs of Defence staff in here. In the creative industries, we've got uh, Melvin Bragg, and we've got Floella ben- Benjamin, coming in. We've got Lord Bird who established a big issue. So there's an expertise there that's unavailable uh, to people in, in the House of Commons. If I remember correctly, Theresa May took some steps to reduce the size of the chamber and that didn't happen so much with, the, with her successor. What did you make of that? Well, actually it did work very well with, with Theresa May, I think, as you can acknowledge. It's for others and that's why I'm reaching out to others. I'm reaching out to the Prime Minister to have a discussion uh, on these particular issues. Yeah, that's your diplomatic way of saying that Boris Johnson certainly was a bit more relaxed about appointing peers than Theresa May in terms of the, in terms of the numbers. <laughs> yeah, you're nodding. <laughs> um, have you been disappointed by the kinds of appointments that have been made in recent years that people see stories like Yevgeny Lebedev or Michelle Moon... Do you worry that that's impacting on the reputation of all of you? I'm always hopeful rather than optimistic. So there's a positive edge to me for the future. So watch this space. The majority of members of the Lords, and crucially the majority of members who attend regularly, are political appointees. So there's a risk of overstating the independence of the Lords. But there's still a sizable group of cross-bench, independent peers who bring expertise from all areas of public life. They're kind of the golden children, the teacher's pets, the ones who make the case for the Lord's adding value in the way the Commons can't. Here's one of them. I'm Tony Gray-Thompson. I'm a cross-bench peer. Uh, I spent 25 years of my life uh, as an athlete. I competed at five Paralympic Games, won 16 medals. And I now sit in the House of Lords as non-party affiliated. And I work on a whole range of issues from uh, around disability rights, women's rights and lots of other things. So tell me a bit about your work. What's a day in the life of a Lord or a Baroness? So we've got our sitting hours. So we sit differently. We generally sit Monday to Thursday. We have select committee meetings, lots of other things around that. So I think the platform it gives you is that, you know, if I'm dealing with an accessibility case or a failure by a train company to a disabled person, if I write on House of Lords paper, they kind of have to respond to me. There's loads of different levers for change. And actually, one of the most important ones that I've learned is that, okay, so we're very privileged. We have afternoon tea here, you know, which we pay for, but, you know, and we have pastry chefs that make the most amazing cakes. And if you want to give a company, you want to challenge what they're doing towards disabled people, you invite them in for afternoon tea. And you have this lovely conversation over tea and cakes and crumpets and whatever. And I spent I spend quite a lot of money on that year. But I absolutely love that. Oh, it's fabulous. It's not good for my waistline. This technique of persuading people over afternoon tea in the Lords does work. Sometimes. A whole group of us got legislation through last year to protect 16, 17-year-olds in sport. Now it's a criminal offence to be in a sexual relationship uh, between a coach and a, a, a young athlete. You know, that's it. I was working on that for seven years. Can you tell me a bit about how you were appointed and about your early experience of the Lords and entering this kind of, what seems from the outside like quite a weird world? It's a very weird and a very interesting world. And I think it's really important that you don't think that this is real life because it's not. We we work in a very privileged building with beautiful paintings all around us and and we get looked after um, incredibly well. But um, I came here in 2010 
So the process started about a year before that. And basically with the crossbenchers, they do a gap analysis, what's needed to make the place work. And at that point, my expertise was around disability rights and sport. And we were about to host the 2012 Olympics and Paralympics. I had an interview and then follow-up process and then background checks and then lots of conversations about you do realise it's a job. And then the way I found out, it was a Tuesday night. I was in a local shopping mall with my daughter and I got an email that just said on Friday it'll be announced you're going into the Lords. My first day, it's, it's terrifying, you know, because you come in and I competed in front of 110,000 people in a stadium, but you come into this building which is steeped in history and tradition and rules and what you can say and what you can't say and, you know, it, it's, it's a bit scary. But actually it's the most open place I've ever worked. It's the least misogynistic place I've ever worked. Someone listening might be really surprised by that because looking in on it from the outside, most peers aren't like you. I mean, the honest experience, I think, of, of a, a member of the public going into the chamber is looking around. It's a, it's a lot of old white men. It's not that representative of Britain. Yes, if you look at the chamber and you don't listen to what's said, then it doesn't look diverse. But I think sometimes you do have to listen to diversity of opinion, and that's a different form of diversity. That's not to say we shouldn't keep making sure that we are representative of of British society, but actually our job is not to represent, it's to bring a viewpoint. So I remember coming out of the chamber one day and I remember coming out a member of the public saying, oh, it's full of old white guys and like, and who was that old bloke? And it's like, it's Lord Joffe, Joel Joffe. Yeah, what's he ever done? It's like, well, he's a human rights lawyer. Yeah, yeah, one of those. What's he ever done? This is the guy that got Nelson Mandela off the death penalty. And what I'd say to anyone is just look at what we do, love us or hate us, whatever, you know, but just engage. And and you just have these sort of moments in time where sometimes you're in a discussion with someone who's this sort of incredible person who's done amazing things in politics. And actually, regardless of our opinions, we are trying to make it better for people. Morning, morning. So you can probably hear from my footsteps that I am dashing through Westminster Hall, the oldest bit of Parliament. Uh, It's a very special day today because I am meeting, interviewing my first ever Earl a member of that endangered species, a a rare hereditary peer who's happy to speak to me about what he does and to talk about the hereditary peerage. Just dashing through past lots of grand statues, the grandest bit of Parliament, up into Central Lobby, going to Peers Lobby to meet him. Lord Caithness. Hi, Hello. Hello, nice to see you. Sorry to keep you waiting. That's all right. I'm Malcolm Caithness. I'm a hereditary peer. I took my seat when I was 21. I've been a government minister for 10 years and now I'm a backbencher. Can you just tell me what it's like to do your job? What's the life of a hereditary peer? The same as anybody else. <laughs> we are perfectly normal human beings. We just happen to have inherited a title. Now, when I came into the House of Lords and I came in at the age of 21, I was given three bits of advice. The first bit of advice is you speak on your honour. The second bit of advice was you only speak when you know the subject. And the third bit of advice was vote on your conscience. Now, that today is a little bit old-fashioned and some people might say out of date. I think those three principles should still apply to the second chamber. Mm. So, my, my life is exactly the same uh, as a life peer's or anybody else in, in the UK or the world, except that I have a right, and having been voted in, in uh, 1999, I have a right to sit and participate in the legislative process of the United Kingdom. Now, that is a huge honour, a huge privilege, not to be abused or taken lightly. Now, unfortunately for poor Lord Keith Ness, growing numbers of campaigners and politicians have been trying to boot him and his fellow hereditary peers out of the Lords for a long time now. And as the battle lines are drawn for a likely general election next year, there might be even bigger changes for the Lords on the horizon. We're going inside those battles in part two. Stay with us. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Like so many things in British politics, the House of Lords was never designed to be this way. No one ever sat down and created our political system, assigning roles and rules to the primary and second chambers. The Lords has evolved over time. And for that reason, there's always been a constant debate about whether it needs to evolve further. But why could we not get rid of the House of Lords altogether? What's the value to having a second chamber at all? Most large democracies now have two chambers. They're what's called bicameral systems. This is Jess Sargent from the Institute for Government. And one of the primary functions of that is to create some checks and balances within the political system. So especially when you have a primary chamber um, that is elected on the basis of population, it's quite often a majoritarian system. Um, so, for example, that means the government has quite a lot of control over the first chamber. Second chambers are often designed to add a bit of extra friction into the system. They can be designed in a lot of different ways. Quite often they are designed to represent a different group of interests than just kind of proportional to the population. So if you look at, for example, the US Senate, um, there are representatives from all the different states and smaller states have more representation than they do in the House of Representatives. Um, and larger states have less representation. So to kind of um, make sure that all their interests are represented. Um, there's also other ways. So, for example, in the Irish Senate, um, there are seats that are reserved specifically for different types of professions and groups. So there's an agricultural group, there's education, there's industry. So to try and uh, make sure that all of the interests of the population are represented and that they aren't kind of overrun by this sort of idea of a tyranny of a majority. The other function is that quite often they will serve a slightly different purpose that have a slightly different role to the primary chamber. So they might be more involved in the sort of nitty gritty detailed scrutiny rather than the kind of broad brush, do we approve this policy? And I think that's particularly true in the House of Lords as it exists today. You'll remember that the Lords began as the chamber for bishops and aristocrats and that it used to vote on all our laws. And that only began to change in the first half of the 20th century. There was this question about whether it was fair for a generally conservative majority chamber that represented kind of elitist interest should be able to block um, the democratically elected primary chamber and government. So we saw this really come to a head in 1909 when the Conservative majority House of Lords blocked uh, the people's budget from the Liberal government. And that sparked a debate about reform about the powers of the House of Lords. And as a result of that, we got the 1911 Parliament Act, where we saw the powers over money being removed from the House of Lords and also um, a change in powers to prevent them from blocking legislation. They could only delay it. And then the next kind of very significant House of Lords reform was in 1958 when life peers were created. So this was the idea that the Prime Minister could appoint ordinary people to serve in, in the House of Lords and that's where we first saw women enter the House of Lords as well. So that's extraordinary because I don't think people would realise that it's so recent that people can be appointed to the Lords. Before that was it purely hereditary and bishops. 
Yes, yeah, pretty much. So it is a fairly kind of new innovation in, in that way. And that's where this idea of kind of having experts, people with a lot of experience, and that being the role of the second chamber sort of started to evolve. And like I say, it becoming a bit more um, representative of the population, including the, the introduction of, of, of women, uh, which again seems quite amazing that that only happened in, in 1958. Women in the House of Lords, what will they think of next? But after this radical revolution of the late 1950s, the next big reform to the Lords wouldn't come until Tony Blair took power 40 years later. So New Labour came in with a a manifesto commitment to reform the House of Lords. Um, As a first step, the first thing it did was remove the majority of hereditary peers from the House of Lords. Now, initially their plan was to remove all of the hereditary peers of the House of Lords, but the legislation to do that had to go through the House of Lords itself. And as you might imagine, there was a bit of resistance from the existing hereditary peers that sat there. So as a compromise, they agreed that 92 members could stay and they developed this slightly strange system of um, hereditary peer by-elections. Um, Everyone's favourite. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, I'm going to jump out here to pay tribute to New Labour for gifting us all the rare joy of the hereditary peer by-election. Surely the most bonkers crown jewel in our bonkers democracy. Whenever a hereditary peer dies, the others in their grouping, say the Conservative hereditary peers, can elect a new colleague. They're the only ones who can vote, which means the electorate is often about 10 people. And the only candidates are other former hereditary peers who missed out on a seat in the Lords when their numbers were cut down by New Labour. So you get some rather unlikely characters standing in these elections, and the personal manifestos are a treat. I split my time between a garden in East Kent and London, wrote one. Another, currently involved in microbrewery, charity and heritage work. Fluent French and Russian, keen kite surfer. Harold Macmillan's aristocratic grandson listed his experience as landowner and book magazine publisher, brackets Macmillan. Others go more low-key. Born 1947, married. Interests, affordable living. But anyway, having gifted us those beautiful democratic exercises, Labour was always planning to go further with Lord's reform and saw those changes in 1999 as just the first step. But this is where it all got complicated. There were several sort of royal commissions, there were several cross-party talks, but fundamentally what the disagreement was was around the balance between the number of elected members and the number of appointed members. We saw the party kind of go slightly round in circles with kind of different percentages of, of those two groups and really finding it difficult to find consensus. The argument against appointments is pretty straightforward. There is concern that those people are not democratically elected. They're not particularly representative of of the population either, um, in that they tend to be a lot older. The average age of the House of Lords is 71. Um, Only about a third of members are are women. Does it really reflect modern society? And from a point of democratic principle, a lot of people would argue that you should elect the people that are there to vote on your laws. But there are arguments against an elected chamber too. There are concerns that electing a chamber might mean more party control, that actually it will be less of a check on government because there is the possibility that there will be a lot of the same party in in government in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords, although you could design a system that could try and prevent that. And another thing people are really concerned about with the idea of electing the second chamber would be that it might challenge the primacy of the House of Commons. People are worried that you might end up in this situation where you get deadlock, where if the House of Lords has a newer electoral mandate or potentially a more legitimate one if you elected it by, for example, a proportional representation system so it better reflected what people voted, then you might end up with this difficulty in which government found it very difficult to pass things and you end up with this sort of inertia. Back in those Labour days, the House of Commons couldn't decide which balance of elected to appointed members they wanted. And it was a bit like the mayhem of the Brexit years. In 2003, we had this series of indicative votes where the House of Commons famously rejected every option. Um, So there were different percentages put to them about how many appointed, how many elected. And the House of Lords only backed an 100% appointed chamber. 
And then, just as a consensus seemed to be emerging in the Commons for either an 80% or 100% elected chamber, we had the general election of 2010, which left Labour's plans for reforming the Lords unfinished. Our Liberal Conservative government will take Britain in a historic new direction, a direction of hope and unity, conviction and common purpose. The Conservatives and Liberal Democrats said in their coalition agreement that they would reform the House of Lords because it was, and still is, a long-standing flagship Lib Dem policy. But that didn't work either. There was another royal commission, there was, there was a white paper, but unfortunately I think the Conservative Party was never kind of fully on board with that. And when the bills started progressing through the Commons, it became very apparent that there would be a pretty major Conservative rebellion on that, and so those plans also kind of ceased. In the time since, the Lords hasn't changed much, even though the Conservatives promised in their 2019 manifesto to look at the role of the Lords. But there have been some minor reforms. In 2014, um, there was an act passed that allowed peers to retire for the first time, which again seems remarkable that pre-2014 they just had to stay there forever. So uh, there have been sort of tinkering with the edges. Despite a report saying the size of the Lords should be reduced, Theresa May agreeing to a roughly two-out, one-in policy. The Lords is bigger than ever, stuffed with appointments by Boris Johnson, who realised he had a problem passing a lot of his more controversial legislation through the Lords. There are lots of people that would advocate for more scrutiny of the political appointments to the House of Lords. Um, and there is the House of Lords Appointments Commission that was established in, in 2000 to, to some extent, plays a role in this. It's meant to kind of look at any peers that are put forward by the Prime Minister and make a judgment as to whether those appointments are appropriate. But it doesn't have a huge number of powers. And ultimately, I think the fact that we've seen these scandals suggests that it hasn't necessarily been able to stop appointments that, that might not be considered appropriate. Bloated and mired in scandal, Boris Johnson, sorry, I mean the House of Lords, could be in for a major change if, as many people here in Westminster expect, Labour wins the next election. Last December, a report by former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, commissioned by Keir Starmer, landed with a bang. Keir Starmer will abolish the House of Lords and replace it with a new elected chamber as part of plans to restore trust in politics. It was leaked before publication day, often a symptom of disagreement behind the scenes. But in fact, Keir Starmer never said he would implement this grand plan, only that he would consult on it. And as so often happens, a row was brewing within the Labour Party. So the reason that Keir launched the commission in the first place was that he has a diagnosis of the UK that is actually the structure of the way power and money works in the UK isn't working for most people. Henry Stannard worked closely with Gordon Brown on his commission and is CEO of Our Scottish Future, founded by Gordon Brown. Britain is the most centralised country economically in the Western world. It's also the most centralised country politically in the Western world. If you want to drive economic growth more fairly across the UK, then you need to devolve power across the UK. But our other observation was, it is not enough just to devolve power. You have to reform the centre as well. And the House of Lords, is, you know, our, our reforms of the House of Lords that we're suggesting come from a place of wanting to give devolution and devolved power and regional power a voice in the centre uh, and a way of holding the centre to account, uh, rather than, as happens today, devolution is something that the centre tolerates but can practically override quite easily. So you're almost framing it as you needed to find a mechanism to entrench devolution and the Lords happens to be the solution, rather than looking at the Lords and thinking, how can we make this thing the best it can be? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we've proposed a chamber which is smaller, more representative and more democratic. So smaller, you know, I, I think we're looking at, you know, 200 or so, but that's for redefinition. More democratic, so elected in some way. We, we haven't specified how, but probably off-cycle with, uh, with general elections. And more representative, meaning that you know, people would be assigned to regions properly rather than now, where I think you've got real over-representation of London, just in terms of the, of, of the places people are lords and ladies of. 
but also massively more over-representation if you look at where they actually live. It probably hasn't escaped your attention that the Labour Party is 20-odd percentage points ahead in the polls, which means Keir Starmer's thinking about the House of Lords actually matters quite a lot. Labour beef over whether they should go big and replace the Lords with an elected chamber in their first term or do something more incremental is actually a pretty big deal. This is an argument about how Labour spends its time in government, how it affects change, and as with all great Labour beef, it's becoming a bit of a Blair Brown split, with Keir Starmer stuck in the middle. This is what the original Blairite, Peter Mandelson, Lord Mandelson, told Newsnight back in December. I mean, you can either show boat and grandstand about abolition of the House of Lords, or you can get serious about the really deep, serious reform that the House of Lords requires, and which you can do uh, on a cross-party basis and with some degree of uh, consensus. If you don't have that cross-party agreement and you don't have that uh, consensus, then in all likelihood you're going to find yourself swept up into a sort of quagmire uh, of disagreement. Here's Henry Stannard again. I think just saying this is going to take ages and why would you bother doing it when you could be doing something else is, I just think, a pretty uh, reductive argument. If you look at the last five, five years of constant constitutional crisis, the laws has not played a role in resolving any of it. So loads of time being taken in the laws doing this, I think, is absolutely fine. And if you do consultation now, put something in the manifesto, I think it can go through pretty quickly. Or you could do consultation in power and you know, do a Royal Commission and then do, do that at the end. But David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, a former Secretary of State and, yes, another Blairite, is yet another of the Labour Lords who's rather sceptical of Gordon Brown's proposals. Well, Gordon Brown's been obsessed with this and put up his own proposals. My advice would be I would think about this long and hard because you certainly wouldn't in your first term want to be taking on the, the battle that's been raged for a hundred years and more and has been damaging to a whole number of regimes over those years. I think actually having a major battle in which the House of Lords could block change for a considerable period of time would inevitably mean you wouldn't be doing the things that are the priority of the public. I mean, that's just a fact. So... I, I think there's a reform is necessary for the House of Lords, but you need to take a look at the, uh, uh, the House of Representatives, Senate and the Presidency in the United States and the gridlock of the next two years to avoid, like the plague, having an elected chamber that can second check with consent and legitimacy from the public the elected first chamber. You really would have to think very seriously about the consequences of that. I nearly said you'd have to have your head examined, but perhaps that's taking it a bit far. Well, I'm sure Gordon Brown will be thrilled that David Blunkett only nearly said he needs his head examined. We've been pretty explicit about the powers that chamber would have. Gordon Brown's sidekick, Henry Stannard. The only power of the chamber is to scrutinise legislation when it comes to the devolution settlement and other critical constitutional um, pieces of legislation that have been passed in the UK. Uh, the role of that chamber is not to get in the way of the ordinary business of government. And at the moment, the way that we resolve conflicts around those issues is through the courts, which I'd say is far less democratic and far less wieldy than resolving it through a more democratic method. These proposals would give the Lords the power to block legislation that's considered constitutional. The Lords can't block anything at the moment, so that would be huge. And there's a big question over how things would be defined as constitutional or not. And it's all gone quiet for now. Labour lords are trying to persuade Keir Starmer to kick the plans into the long grass and go for easier, low-hanging fruit reform instead, like banning hereditary peers or tweaking the retirement age. But Neil Kinnock, Lord Kinnock, the former Labour leader, is one Labour lord who would happily vote to abolish himself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it should be replaced with a very explicitly revising chamber that's representative of the whole of the United Kingdom, uh, elected pro by proportional representation, probably on a regional basis, so that 
there is devolution right across the United Kingdom, not only to Scotland and Wales and sporadic mayoralities. We need to have, well, maybe a Royal Commission on the Constitution in order to give us, in a very short time, a design for the Britain of the 21st century. We don't just need a change of government, though we do need that desperately. We need a change of governance because everything, technology, economics, uh, the climate, the attitudes of changing generations, all of that's changed. And we still run, with the exception of votes for women, as if it was the late 19th century. It's a genuinely interesting battle of ideas, a split that divides Keir Starmer's aides, the Labour shadow cabinet, the MPs, the Lords and the party grandees. Radicalism versus pragmatism, status quo or real change. It all boils down to how you think politics should be done. One of the things that's underlying British politics and has been for the last five, certainly for the last five years, if not the last 10, 20 years, is a sense that things are profoundly broken in the UK. There's a sense in the country, on the left and the right, that our economy isn't working for people, our public services aren't working for people, and nobody is listening. And I think that Westminster, at the moment, in general, gets a big brunt of that. And I don't think that changing the face at the top, even if you are changing them to nicer, better faces who are more morally correct in some instances, is going to change that profound sense of dislocation that the country has. And I think unless you change the thing which is full of hereditary peers, party donors, one-off ideas that suddenly become life appointments, unless you change that, you're not really doing change. So what would Tani Gray-Thompson, Baroness Gray-Thompson, the former Paralympic gold medalist and crossbench peer, make of her own abolition. The whole of politics needs a change. The House of Commons, which are the elected representatives and us who are nominated. But, you know, one of the issues is, you know, people go, oh, well, we'll chuck out the House of Lords. And I think what I say is, first of all, be careful what you wish for, because although it might not be ideal that we are here for life, we're not caught in votes. We, we have time to work on legislation and we bring expertise, you know, I think we're really clear. Our job is not to run the country. Our job is to say to the government of the day, have another think. Uh, we we think you can do better. So I think one of the things of frustration is that people don't really know how we work either end. And that then, as I'm doing now, feels like we're justifying our existence. But Gordon Brown and Keir Starmer's Labour can count on support from at least one unlikely place. Well, I, I put forward an amendment many years ago now I was trying to create something like the American Senate, and I wanted two people from each county in the UK. What Gordon Brown is proposing is something not unlike that, but I didn't see why there shouldn't be two members representing Greater London, two members representing Caithness, just as in America you have two members representing California and two representing Rhode Island. So he has your qualified support? Yes. Ah, the good old Earl of Caithness. In case you were wondering, he has voted against banning hereditary peer by-elections every time it's come up in the Lords, but always insists it's because he wants even bigger reform. If you stop the by-elections, the number of hereditary peers will dwindle to zero. Now that's fine for those who want a purely appointed House, appointed on the whim of the Prime Minister, I don't think that's a good way to govern this country. I don't think it produces the right people or some of the right people to come in here. And I think that by having the hereditary peers produces an incentive for a much better reform of the House of Lords than a partial reform of the House of Lords. And if you're a bit baffled by that argument, I'd say you're not the only one. It's the curious case of the House of Lords. Everyone I've interviewed says it should be reformed, but that's obvious. And yet Labour and Conservative governments have had over two decades to do just that, and haven't. You've heard all the work they do in the Lords, the expertise some of them bring, 
You might think there's no rush to ditch this quirky old place. You might even be a bit charmed by it. Well, hang on, says Henry Stannard. Maybe that's exactly the problem. It's really easy to do a programme about the Lords where you are beguiled by their... Some members of the House of Lords' intelligence, kindness, intriguingness. And it's really easy to say, look at this thing, they have great debates, they've got some great people in it, and look, they're not really doing any harm anyway, and they're doing a little bit of good, so you know, why don't we keep this kind of British exceptionalist way of doing it? It's a bit like cheese rolling or some other kind of wacky British tradition. Why would we ever change this? I think you have to ask yourself the question, given where Britain is at the moment, is having a novelty appendage that doesn't have much power but occupies a big seat of power, is that really good enough to deliver for the British people given the challenges that we're going to be facing over the next 10, 20 years? And I don't think it is. And I think that people who seek to say it's too hard to change are defending the status quo and a status quo that is uniquely broken. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us, and maybe leave us a nice review. My producer was Eve Streeter of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. But before you go... Hello. <laughs> meet our host for next week. Aggie Chambre, welcome to Westminster Insider. Thanks so much, Alva. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. So, you're the new co-host of Westminster Insider. You're very welcome. Thank you. Listeners need to get used to this new <laughs> voice, the new dulcet tones of Aggie. Although um, I, have that, I have that winter cold, so actually I normally don't sound this good. <laughs> sounding very French at the yeah. moment. <laughs> can you give us a hint of what your first episode will be on? What can people expect to be dropping in their ears next week? Well, I don't want to give too much away, but all I'll say is uh, Jack's first episode was on morning emails. Your first episode was on Inside the Lobby. Um, so it made sense for me to do an episode on where I just left off before I came to Westminster Insider. But before we go, shall we leave a quick teaser? Oh, yeah. So this, what you're about to hear, is one of my favourite clips from one of the interviews that you will hear in full next week. When, you know, you really want to hear from a certain person you think there is a real public interest to hear from them, it, it can sound quite ridiculous, but it does feel like you will go to the ends of the earth to find and locate that person. It's looking like such a good episode. Aggie, we'll be back next week. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.